You're listening to CKGI Gabriela Co-op Radio 98.7 FM and on the web at ckgi.ca. And this is The Farmer's Table. I'm Alexandria Stewart. And I'm Sean Enns. And today we're exploring the right to farm. First, we'll look at the Right to Farm Act and how it does and does not protect farmers' rights to produce food. Then, it's off to Sweet Rock Farm, where Sal Dominelli shares his story as a Gabriola Island farmer. We'll talk a little about farmers' markets in the region and close the show with the last word, our own thoughts on what the Right to Farm means. And now, the Right to Farm. Under the Right to Farm Act, also known as the Farm Practices Protection Act, Farms operating under normal farming practices are protected from complaints about noise, dust, and odor. But are they? Exploring the issue led us to several farmers who saw protection under the Act with varying degrees of success. Dan Ferguson is a director on the National Farmers Union. They work to achieve agricultural policies that ensure dignity and security of income for farm families, while enhancing the land for future generations. Dan and his wife Regan own Dragonfly Farm, a 33-acre property located in Duncan. Their land is on the Agricultural Land Reserve, or ALR, provincially and municipally zoned as farmland. It is a small mixed farm where they grow all-season vegetables and raise chicken, sheep, and guinea fowl. I had a neighbor show up in, in uh, 203. And I, bought the, I, I purchased a place December 6, 2002. So we, it was our first Christmas here, so, so I, it was right you know, around... Boxing Day, maybe December 26th, December 27th, somewhere near. They came over and, and, and informed me that my uh, rooster was causing them personal hardship. And honestly, at the, at the start, I thought they were pulling my leg. I, you know, I can't imagine living in a country and, and finding you know sounds of farm animals annoying. I've always been a real advocate for agricultural land or agricultural land reserve. And, and so I, I guess I could have capitulated and said, no, I'll get rid of my animals. But, but really, I'm tired of seeing farmers forced off their property from, from residential pressures. So, so I did what I could. In, initially, in about 2004, I did a bunch of fencing. I did a bunch of cross-fencing, trying to get my animals away from them. It still wasn't good enough until in, in 2010, they, they launched a, a legal battle against me. They challenged my, my right to farm and, and my, my farming practices. I realized that that there's no way I could back up and and uh, and really promote agriculture and agricultural land at the same time. So I, I dug in and, and and stood up for the farmers' rights of British Columbia. Dan looked to the Right to Farm Act for help. Well, it sounds wonderful until you have to prove that your your farming practices are normal. So so the Right to Farm Act, oh yay! You know the government's protecting our our, our rights. But what they do under the Right to Farm Act is, is they have to they, they force you in a position where you have to prove your innocence effectively. So it's counter to any 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 sort of normal law that or an average Canadian would would enjoy. Under the Right to Farm Act, the complainant Dan Feehan was within his rights to protest noise generated on the farm. The BC Farm Industry Review Board panel heard the complaint found that Dan Ferguson was conducting his business according to normal farm practices, and the complaint was dismissed. But it cost the Fergusons $43,000 in legal bills, and more. And about $80,000 altogether in, in, in uh, trying to, to mitigate noise problems with my neighbours, like fencing and cross-fencing, moving my coops 
to the furthest point away from them. Like I, I did do all that stuff. Um, so it's, it's closer to eighty thousand um, dollars. But the amount of awareness they've raised for other farmers and the, the precedence is set now. And so, so other farmers throughout the province will be able to use that indefinitely. Um, and, and community members are maybe a little more aware of, of some of the plights that, that their farmers have to go through. So, so I, that on that level, it's just a one hundred percent win. is is wonderful. Island Chef's collaborative microloan fund administrator Jason Found was troubled by the hardships faced by the Fergusons. Challenges like Dan was having here are really disappointing because we should be giving farmers a hand instead of like bogging them down in legal challenges and leaving them with big financial burdens. It's hard. I mean, farmers aren't getting rich. It's not a, it's not a young street career. There's a billion reasons to eat locally, um, and I wish people would do it more. Just fostering relationships between the people you know so you don't need certification to tell you something has been grown right because you just trust them. And helping out your neighbor because you know that when you come to Dan and you buy greens from Dan, Dan's going to come and sit in your pub like I see him at the end in Spinnaker's so often at that bar. You know that it's a full circle, whereas if you're buying greens from California, those farmers aren't going to come and sit in your restaurant. So, I mean, the basis of local economics... Carrie Barlow, a director with the Island Chefs Collaborative, also believes that it's important to support farmers like Ferguson. He wants what we all want. He wants to feed his children good food. He wants other people to realize that there is much better food available to them. He wants to live a good life, and he loves working hard. And of the 19 of the 20 neighbors... In connection with this property, had no problem with his farming practices. One neighbor did, and they cost him almost his livelihood. I think it's terrifying that farmers can be put in that position, and there is no one to help them. That scares me. As a mother, as a food activist, as someone that believes that people that live on an island really should look at where they are getting their sustenance from you know not that everyone shouldn't but it's it's a big deal right and for me farmers are getting a bad rap jenny mcleod secretary of the district a farmers institute questioned whether the complaint against dan ferguson should have made it as far as the bc farm industry review board in the first place thing is I researched this thing to death, and they were basing this, they took this case, and they based it on these regulations about noise, dust, and smell. There are regulations. All of these regulations are to do with factory farms, with the machinery with the huge trucks that come in in the middle of the night take all the chickens out. With these huge chicken barns and all the dust and the smell that goes along with them. That's what these are about. There is not one regulation that deals with the noise, the dust, or the smell of an actual farm animal. Away from the berry farms. The big scare cannons they have for birds. At the end of his testimony, I got to ask him the question. I said, look... I said, I have been asking and asking and asking and looking. I said, 
I could not find one regulation on the actual sound of a farm animal. And he jumped at the chance. He said, no, and neither could I. This is the specialist. So our point was, then what are we doing here? It's like, if there's no regulation that he has actually broken, then what are we doing here? And why does he have a lawyer? And why are we here? The Fergusons aren't alone in dealing with complaints about their farming practices. Ian Baker of Pennypot Farm received a visit from a bylaw officer on his Jingle Pot Road property in Nanaimo. His land is also in the ALR, but the matter was handled very differently. Uh, we've been here 25 years. We started the farm license here. We've done pigs every year since we've been here. We do a couple every year at least, mainly just to fill the freezer. And uh, we do chickens here and chicken eggs. Yeah, we got a knock on the front door one day, and it's the um, animal bylaw person. And he's telling me I'm, uh, or we are, disturbing the peace, and that they've had a complaint from a neighbor at the top of the hill that uh, our rooster is making too much noise. And then about two weeks later, I get the phone call and he says, oh yeah, you guys are totally legit. They checked all our, um, we get assessed every year for what we produce and what we use for feed. So they went through all that stuff and said, oh yeah, you're totally legit. So you are actually allowed to have a rooster. Baker is a strong advocate for the right to farm. I, I think everybody should have the right to farm. You shouldn't have to be a farm uh property to be allowed to have chickens, you know, raise, raise stuff for feed, right? You, you, it's, it's kind of a funny subject, really, but I think everybody should be growing, and even if it's not animal product, at least the green variety, the edible stuff, just grow one thing if you can't, you know, just do anything doesn't matter what it is but if you if everybody just grew one thing we'd we'd all be contributing and it would make a huge difference yeah Dirk Becker and his partner Nicole Shaw of Compassion Farm had a highly publicized battle with the district of Lanceville over their small-scale farm their land is not in the ALR and they were cited under bylaw 1073 for unsightly premises and bylaw 60 prohibiting the sale of agricultural products on a residentially zoned property. Compassion Farm is a um, 2.5 acre property in Upper Lansville and we grow about 16,000 pounds of vegetables on about one acre of our two and a half acres. Over three years ago uh, we um, got a, a letter from the District of Lansville basically said that we had a um, you know a, some compost close, too close to the road. They uh, fixated and focused on manure and smell, and the they latched onto and were effective with fear mongering, uh, telling residents they're going to have pig farms next door and run off from manure and poisoning the aquifer and the neighbors' wells and our manure ending up on the beach in Lanceville and on it goes all to get us to stop growing food on this property. 
Their focus is on recognizing urban farms as worthy of the same protections as rural farms. With urban farming, you can adjust the laws to say, yes, you can have chickens, and if your lot is this size, you can have five, like in Nanaimo, and if it's this size, you can have 10, and if you have an acre, you can have 20 chickens. So all of these things can be massaged and changed, and we can learn as we go, rather than just saying, no, uh, farming has to be only done on you know, land that is zoned agricultural and is also in the ALR. And so all we've asked for is that this bylaw would be changed, that urban farming would be recognized as a viable, appropriate home-based business, that urban farming would go from something that's illegal to something that is encouraged, supported, and even protected. And after three years, meaningful public consultation is beginning to happen. The district hired a brand new planner and said that your number one task is to work on this issue. There was a all-day session, which included hiring um, a planner, uh, you know, and other experts and a facilitator from the Lower Mainland, and engaged the public and asked them to give input. So we are now finally in the early stages of working on drafting a bylaw that would, in essence, legalize urban farming within the District of Lansville. Unfortunately, these changes came at a huge price for Dirk and Nicole. Uh, it has cost us you know, mentally, emotionally, financially. It's cost our farming. It's affected our relationships. It's affected our ability to perform at the farmer's market and make sales. Uh, it's affected our crops, our weeding, all of that. So, you know, we, we're tired, so we are now have our house up for sale, and we are uh, in the process of leaving the community of Lanceville as quickly as we can. So wherever Nicole and I go, we will continue to use local food as our primary tool to reach out to others and engage them in you know, conversations that include what kind of a future do you want for yourself and your children? And how can you and I, how can you and I work together to create a better, brighter, more sustainable future? These recent conflicts between farmers and their neighbours, both inside and outside of the ALR, have illuminated areas where the Right to Farm Act doesn't succeed in protecting farmers. Whether you live in an urban or rural area, do you support the production of food in your neighbourhood? Do you feel that farmers have adequate protection, or deserve more, or less? If you want to be a part of the conversation, reach out to your municipal leaders and your MLA and let them know what you think. You're listening to The Farmer's Table on CKGI Gabriel the Co-op Radio, 98.7 FM, and on the web at ckgi.ca. And now for our profile segment where we get to know local farmers and food producers. Sweet Rock Farm sits on a rocky piece of land at the south end of Gabriola Island. Owner Sal Dominelli grew up with farming in his blood. My mom grew up on a farm, uh, a family farm in uh, Surrey back back in the day when Surrey was mostly farms. <laughs> and uh, I grew up with stories, both from her and my, and my grandma, of, of what it was like. They had a, it was a working farm. They had uh, uh, over an acre just of strawberries and 
they had uh, they had a cow, they had chickens and geese, and they sold vegetables. You know, the whole nine yards. And and uh, so I grew up with those stories, and and I I loved those stories. You know, my grandma always used to talk about how much food they have and, and the abundance and how much she loved it. And you know, because by the time I like my earliest memories, I can remember sort of that farm life. But by the time I was I was uh, 10, that was mostly gone. They just had a big garden. You know, they'd moved off the farm. and um, So I'd, I've always wanted to farm. And uh, it wasn't until, until, you know, I got this place that I really started to get into the growing of vegetables. And, and uh, it just kind of blossomed from there. I just kept growing more every year. And and uh, and the family's been been into it too, so they've been you know helping me out, and, and you know we well like the lifestyle. So. Our property, Sweet Rock Farm, is a little over an acre in size, and uh, if I had to sum it up uh, in a couple of words, I would say that our our farm is a subsistence farm, meaning that our primary goal is to grow food for ourselves, and um, anything left over gets sold at the, at the market or at the, at our roadside stand. Uh, uh, you know, one acre doesn't sound like a lot, but it's actually, you can grow a ton of stuff on an acre and we easily grow all our food, um, and have plenty to sell as well. Um, on the farm, we have over 40 different kinds of fruit and nut trees, you know, apples, pears, plums, uh, walnuts and hazelnuts, um, figs, we have 150 um, grapevines, uh, some wine grapes, and mostly table grapes, and a thousand square foot greenhouse, and um, lot you know lots of growing space for vegetables. Uh, 150 feet of raspberries, and uh, established rows, so they produce lots. Um, and then a chicken run, and they kind of go everywhere. <laughs> Um, you know, at different different times of the year, they're slotted in different areas, but they basically have free range. And uh, so, I guess that would that would be it in a, in a nutshell. Oh, plus I grow in a couple of different areas in the island. But for our sweet rock farm, that's that's the basics. We had a garden. We started expanding it, and and uh, but we, you know, we ran into rock. Like we've got rock outcroppings everywhere. Down at one end of the property, there's an eight to ten foot cliff that goes down to the far end of the property and uh um you know at first I hated it it was really frustrating to work with because you know most farming models are just like this big rectangle and you can take a tractor from one end to the other and uh it's you know fertile bottomland but uh you know we don't have that here I've got like I say rock outcroppings everywhere so I've had to farm in sort of the fertile pockets and and uh but it actually works out really well um you know, there's benefits to every piece of land, whether you're on, on a top of a cliff or, or in the bottom of a valley. And one thing that we notice about our place is that, uh, you know, our fraught, we have very, very uh, um, early, pardon me, what am I saying here? Our, our, uh, our growing season is very long. We, we don't get very many frosts. Like uh, the other place I farm is, is uh, bottom land and it got a frost late September last year and we didn't get our first frost until mid-November. So our growing season's a lot longer. Um, we don't have very many problems with molds here because it's not as damp as down in the you know the valley places. So it's really good for growing grapes. Um, 
nobody grows tomatoes like me. They just get so sweet because it's so hot and and uh, yeah. So there's real advantages. You know, the, the disadvantages, of course, is is it trying to grow kale or chard in the summertime is tough, or lettuce in the in the summertime because they they require a lot of water. This is south facing. It uh, it gets hot sun all day long. Uh, my neighbor just down the road, he lives at the bottom of the hill. He gets, uh, you know, it's a swamp where he lives. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, he gets really early frosts. Um, he has a hard time growing tomatoes. And he's only 300 feet away, you know. While Sweet Rock Farm operates on organic principles, formal certification wasn't necessarily the best option. I've got some pretty strong feelings about it. I, I, I consider myself an organic farmer and I'm not certified. I started to go through the certification process and, and I stopped and kind of gave my head a shake and, and I said, this is not worth it financially to me. Uh, organic's a big, a big thing, you know, it, it involves a lot of, a lot of, uh, a real, real mindset about farming, you know, sort of long-term sustainability, um, you know, crop rotation, um, I think you also need animals on your farm to be a, to be a, you know, to help with long-term uh, fertility as well. And, but, uh, anyway, so I, yeah, I, I, I started going through the certification process. At least I got all, I got all the paperwork and got it all filled out, but, um, I stopped because I realized that for me to, for me to get certified was going to cost me more than I would make back in a year to get organic certification the only reason to do it is to use it as a marketing tool so you can charge a little more for your vegetables right i mean if you if you don't want to be organically certified you can still be organic and that's that's fine right but uh, to get certified is is to be is it's a marketing device so you can charge more but here on gabriola everyone already calls or a lot of people call themselves organic anyway and charge that extra price I, I wouldn't be able to charge any more than I do now for my head of lettuce, um, but my costs would go way up, and uh, and I'm just I'm not willing to go there, so that's why I'm not certified. Stories from his family helped to ease the learning curve as Sal moved further into farming. I don't know. A lot of my knowledge, I guess, came from my my mom and my grandma. Like you know, just the stories. Like I. I before my grandma died, I used to visit her and just plug her for information about certain things, and and uh, and and also my my grandma on the other side, um, she grew up in the prairies, um, you know, one of fourteen kids on a farm. She and and when she she's over a hundred years old now, and when she, when she grew up, you know, it was in a dirt floor. Her her mom made dresses out of the flour sacks, and and. Uh, just some of the some of the just basic stuff. Even if they weren't farming back then, everyone farmed, so there was just so much knowledge about about when to plant your wheat. And and uh, one thing my my grandma said to me uh, <laughs> after I started the grain co-op, she she's like, just said casually offhand. She just mentioned that you know it was really good to to. Um, range my my chickens in in the spring wheat um but to make sure that they were out of this out of the out of there before the the wheat got knee high so they wouldn't it wouldn't hurt the yields yeah like my my other grandma she used to hatch her uh um, chicken eggs in the warmer of her cook stove you know and and uh and to me that just seems so bizarre like but uh it was something that she just did you know what i mean and uh 
um, three years ago, we uh, the power went out right when we were hatching a bunch of eggs in our incubator, and uh, and I guess that was in my head, and so we just moved our incubator up against the wood stove and and ended up hatching them out that way, <laughs> you know, and and that's kind of the kind of knowledge that you really want, um, that, but that nobody knows, you know what I mean, and. Um, books have also been very useful. I've got a ton. This is just a little, a few, but I've got a ton of books around the house. Um, um, old books, like I've I've got a a book. Uh, it's called Gardening for Profit. That was written in 1888. Uh, you know, before tractors came along. You know, there's you know there's a lot of good sources of knowledge out there, and and then also hands on too. And, and this, you know, like a other local people like a friend of mine on the island the retired organic farmer he's he's taught me a lot about uh um sort of the the modern sort of tractor organic approach um which is the way he farmed in in the fraser valley he's taught me a lot in the last couple of years too and an upswing in family farming will require cooperation between neighbors communities and municipalities when farming becomes um, more of the daily um, part of everyone's lives, which it's going to, you know, as sort of, you know, peak oil really hits us and all that kind of stuff, yada, yada. I, I think the family farm model is going to uh, become really important and a lot of those old ways of doing things will, will come back. G- we're pretty lucky on Gabriola because it's, it's, um, it's written into the community plan that we have, that people are allowed to, to farm on their um, on any size um, parcel of land and and that's not a given in, in a lot of places and in, in Lanceville I might have heard about uh, Dirk Becker and well that's he's not allowed I mean um, and so he's been having all kinds of legal issues but that's not an issue here so we're really lucky that way on Gabriola and um, uh, yeah I, I haven't had any problems and it's been pretty good I just I just need land prices to come down so I can buy some more land. <laughs> That's all. During the growing season, you'll find produce from Sweet Rock Farm at Sal's Roadside Stand on Price Road and at the Gabriola Farmer's Market. The availability of farmland and growing grain are two important stories we'll be looking at on future episodes of The Farmer's Table. You can expect to hear more from Sal then. You're listening to CKGI Gabriola Co-op Radio, 98.7 FM, and on the web at ckgi.ca. We think it's important to promote farmers markets as a great place to learn about food, to meet up with friends and family, connect with your community, and support local farmers who keep 100% of the profits from the products they sell. Market season is winding down, but there are a few that remain open through October. You'll find a full listing online at farmerstable.ca. I'm Sean Enns, and this is The Last Word. Why are we here, and why are we even having this discussion? The right to farm, the freedom to farm, to me, seems something as inalienable as any human right, or any freedom enshrined in our charter. And yet it's not free, in a place where it should be, in a place where we walk such a thin line that, when crossed, would mean hundreds of thousands of us would go hungry. It's not free, it's anything but. Here, the right to farm is a battle that is still being fought and often lost, and yet those fighting for the right, in spite of financial and personal sacrifice, in spite of hardship and loss, they persevere, 
all to ensure that our families will always have something to eat. It's fine to like local food, and most of us do, but would we be willing to wake up at 5 a.m. when the rooster crows? Would we bend a knee to help pull weeds? I like to think so. There's enough evidence to the contrary that I'm concerned for the future of our farms and our farmers and our families. Again and again and again, we hear just how little of our food is grown here. It's less than 5%, by the way. Again and again and again, we're warned of the dangers of relying on a food system that requires vast resources of fossil fuels to transport the things we eat great distances. We're reminded of how much food is stockpiled here. It's only two days worth, if you'll recall. And still, when urban farming is outlawed, when we allow our food growers to fall to friendly fire, are we not guilty of speeding up our own demise? I challenge you to ask yourself this. Will you pick up a rake and a hoe and stand beside the urban farmers who've been driven from their land, all because their pile of compost was unsightly, all because they imagined a future where they might feed their entire community, and because they took action to make it happen? Or will you instead raise a torch and pitchfork and say, not in my backyard? Will you fight for local farms when the California aquifer dries up, and the closest food you can get at the grocery store comes from Mexico? Or would you rather fight your friends and neighbors for the last morsel of food on Vancouver Island than fight a bylaw that opposes urban agriculture? Winston Churchill said, If you will not fight for right when you can easily win without bloodshed, if you will not fight when your victory is sure and not too costly, you may come to the moment when you will have to fight with all the odds against you and only a precarious chance of survival. There may even be a worse case. You may have to fight when there is no hope of victory, because it is better to perish than to live as slaves. I can only think that as we fight for the right to farm, if we will not fight for our food, then what else is left to fight for? Thanks for joining us at the Farmer's Table on CKGI Gabriola Co-op Radio, 98.7 FM, and on the web at ckgi.ca. You'll find more stories, links to farmer's markets and the people we've spoken with today, and more online at farmerstable.ca.